I V M. It's a cold January morning in 170 CE. We've spent the night in a monastery on a hill called Upper Ashila, the Western Mountain. We arrived late the previous evening and trekked up with a band of other exhausted pilgrims. After a simple meal of lentils and rice, the babbles of languages in various Prakrits faded. Most other pilgrims were from this land along the coast of the Bay of Bengal, dusky and curly-haired, although some pale northerners were with us, as were some strange-looking yavanas with exciting stories to tell in their strange dialect from the farthest northwest of Jambudvipa, the land that would one day be called India. Now, a rosy pink spreads to the skies, and the brilliant stars of the Ganga in the sky, the Milky Way, are fading as the sun burns away the darkness of the night. The pilgrims perform their ablutions and leave the monastery, crowding together with their belongings. Some of them are complaining about their sore feet, while the others joke about what they'll do once they've fulfilled their sacred vows. And then, they see it. They fall silent. In the distance, the blue curve of the river Krishna spreads itself like a lazy serpent across the golden earth. The sunlight rippling off its scale-like waves. A flock of geese fly across the water. Their shadows, the sole patches of darkness on the tranquil surface. A magnificent city hugs its side, its proud ramparts waving with banners of all the colors of the rainbow, as ships dart like so many bright fish to and fro its docks. But, gorgeous as the city is, it pales in comparison to the object of all the pilgrims' eyes. Like the laughter of the bodhisattvas, like the snow-crested Himalayas, a great white stupa curves against the sapphire sky. It is capped with a spire of pure gold, like sun reflecting off a cloud come to rest upon the earth, bedecked with great garlands and parasols like a flock of colorful birds. Its overlay of precious metals and gold leaf glitters in the sunlight. The clear ringing of bells echoes like crystal bubbles in the pilgrims' ears as they gaze with wonder at the prayer halls, temples, paths, platforms, wells, and channels that dot the vast, perfect gardens around the mighty building. The Mahachetya, the great hall of the fortunate one, the Amaravati Stupa, the site where the relics of the Buddha himself are interred. Here in a city named after the capital of the god Indra, king of the gods, brings tears to their eyes. A well of devotion brims, and cries and songs break out as the monks of the monastery begin their early morning prayer. By midday, we reach the Mahachetya, joining bands of other pilgrims coming to it like rivers flowing to the sea. In the peaceful gardens of this great complex, groups of laymen led by monks. Chant sutras in all the diverse languages of the Indian subcontinent. Some offer flowers and incense at temples to Buddhist saints nearby, while others watch as monks perform rituals. We enter the stupa through one of its four massive gates that represent the cardinal directions as well as the great events of the life of the Buddha, profusely decked with yakshis, nagas, trees, and stories from myth and history. 
we turn and circle the vast dome gazing with wonder at the gorgeous railings sponsored by donors who maintain the stupa carved with unbelievable intricacy and detail with throngs of joyful dancing men and women gods and demons animals and birds and monsters lost in a throng of pilgrims who have come here from across south asia and even across the seas we can be forgiven for believing that the stupa here sanctified by the sacred power of the remains of enlightened beings is a source of religious merit and peace for all as we circle the great stupa at amaravati whose layers represent the universe itself we circle no less than the very axis of the cosmos i'm anirudh kanesetti and this is echoes Buddhism in the modern Indian states of Andhra Pradesh and Telangana is almost as old as Buddhism itself. The ruins of dozens of monasteries dot the landscape, the oldest of them being 2300 years old. And though barely any Telugu speaking Buddhists survive, it would not be too far-fetched to say that most ancestors of modern Telugus, at least in the early historic period when the first Indian states were forming, would have been Buddhists. I'm Telugu myself though I don't speak it as well as I should and for some strange reason uh thanks perhaps to my own interest in Buddhism that gives me quite a kick Indeed the early history of Buddhism is deeply intertwined with the early history of Andhra like the roots of a great tree I use the term Andhra here to refer primarily to the coastal belt of the modern state since that's where most buddhist sites are concentrated and that's from where andhra's distinctive buddhism poured into the rest of the world to understand that though we're going to have to go a little further back into the past into the megalithic age of south india roughly when the first kingdoms of the north were emerging what is a megalith simply put it means big rock but that's not to say that megalithic south india was still in the stone age or as many used to assume in the 19th and early 20th centuries that south india was a primitive or tribal backwater influenced by the civilization of north india that idea is to put it simply nonsense was india in the 17th century a primitive backwater just because we didn't use the same technology as europeans were indians any more stupid or intelligent because of socio politico economic circumstances for the evolution of that technology didn't exist no and the same applies to south india in the megalithic age it had its own distinctive culture and society though as we'll see that will soon become drastically more complex as new forces are introduced in this time south indians had a distinctive tradition of ancestor worship of the veneration of the dead those who had passed away were carefully buried in elaborate urns or stone structures perhaps pointing to a belief in the afterlife barely any remains of villages or towns survive but plenty of these rock tombs are still around perhaps because taking care of those who had gone was believed to be a source of good fortune or at least a way of averting bad fortune why is that important you ask Tell me, what is a stupa? A stupa is an elaborate structure where people pray to deceased saints, right? Because that worship is a source of good fortune. Does that sound familiar? 
and on top of it south indian religious practices had some similarities with north indian ones already perhaps this reflects an ongoing dialogue or perhaps they both originated from similar common ancestors or maybe it just so happened that since the ecology of these regions is not drastically different the people worshiped similar nature deities sacred trees for example or sacred snakes so when buddhism eventually came to south india perhaps with wandering monks it would have found a populace that would simply have seen stupa worship as a continuation of their own religious practices and would have happily adopted it plus we also need to remember that buddhism wasn't all about meditation and stupas and enlightenment and stuff it also had a distinctive pop culture flavor incorporating local gods and river serpents into its pantheon as we've seen it was the perfect ideological foundation for another process that was taking off in south india urbanization the spread of iron technology and more productive agriculture brought the south indian megalithic age to a gradual close but with productive agriculture come surpluses and with surpluses come elites who capture and concentrate resources which leads to the formation of urban and political centers with new elites come new economic forces leading to the production of culture and luxury items wealthy merchant classes would not have had much room in a brahmanical system and buddhism with its popularity and ideas that donations could lead to merit for all would have been very appealing to south indians especially so since as i said stupa worship was a continuation of what they already believed and so patronage from wide sections of society came to flow into these monastic orders and monastic orders in turn built reservoirs created employment and might even have provided loans to merchants this fueled with the image culture of the andhra land the creativity of its artisans and trade routes to north india and the northwest led to a burst of innovation i paraphrase the scholar shri padma who says that buddhism that spread among the andhra folk expressed itself using the local genius and popular belief system as though the religion itself was the local religion on the slabs that remain of the amaravati stupa we see yakshas sacred trees and sacred snakes all elements of pre-buddhist religion which the locals now infused into their own buddhism and thus the great stupa perhaps one of the most extraordinary buildings ever seen in south india rose out of the fertile soil of the krishna river valley and with it rose with lush detail in cool limestone the joy and splendor of the people of andhra emerging onto the historical scene for the first time with their processions and their devotion their ceremonies and their hopes little did they know what a mark they would make on the history of buddhism and how soon it would be forgotten it would stand till the 1600s gradually being forgotten and plundered as buddhism died out in andhra the chinese monk xuansang showed up a thousand years before that though when buddhism was still around sort of but not that popular in the 600 ce the valley was hollowed a road was made and galleries and pavilions constructed wide chambers supported the heights and connected the caverns the divine spirits respectfully defended this place both saints and sages wandered here and reposed during the thousand years following the nirvana of buddha 
Every year, there were a thousand laymen and priests who dwelt here together during the rainy season. When their time was expired, all who had reached the condition of arhats mounted into the air and fled away. In the first century CE, though, Buddhism was on the ascendant and Amaravati was only one of its many crowning glories. It had already split into multiple distinct sects with their own scriptures and rules, such as the Bahushrutiyas, Chaitikas, Purvashilas, Aparashilas, all of which derived in turn from even older sects such as the Mahasangikas, with doctrinal issues and debates stemming from even the second and third Buddhist councils held in North India soon after the death of the Buddha. According to texts of the time, monks from Andhra actually participated in these councils. You don't have to remember all the names, but it does bring up another question, right? What is true Buddhism? The general belief, of course, is that the school of Buddhism, which is closest to what the Buddha taught, is the version that survives in Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia, which is called the Theravada school. Sri Lankan scriptures are preserved in Pali and claim to be the authentic words of the Buddha himself, and most scholars until recently believed that claim. But Theravada Buddhism itself derives from an even older school called the Sthaviravadins, who are the rivals of the sects of Andhra, who, as I said, were derived from the Mahasanghikas. If you had asked a Mahasanghika monk, he'd probably have given you a long lecture on why the Sthaviravadins are heretics, and it's actually the Mahasanghikas who are like, totally legit, man. The Mahasanghikas aren't around anymore to tell their side of the story, and their scriptures aren't around. All that survives of them is traces in the Mahayana Buddhism of China and Japan. In fact, none of the dozens upon dozens of thriving Indian schools of Buddhism, all arguing in local languages and chanting in regional dialects with their own distinctive local mythologies, are around to tell their stories. We can't be sure which, if any, is authentic and we can't disentangle the branches of this vast tree of Buddhism and figure out what led to what, how Indian schools influenced the rest of the world, or how the rest of the world influenced Indian schools. But nationalist history aside, does it really matter what came first? To paraphrase the Latin poet Horace, nothing that is Indian is alien to me, nothing that is South Asian is alien to us, and nothing that is human is alien to any of us. Philosophizing aside, how did Buddhism spread? Through trade and dialogue, of course. Though, like later Christians, Buddhist schools also had quite a habit of sending their members to other parts of the world to convert people to their true doctrine. No single school was ever dominant. Every now and then, one school would capture elite patronage, and then another bunch would show up and capture popular patronage, and then a bunch of others would show up and they'd all squabble and conduct public debates. And this whole time, there would have been a bunch of other philosophical and religious schools arguing with all of them as well, which would have been quite a sight to see. Keep in mind that we're talking about a time before nationalism. So aside from the doctrinal issues, Buddhists living in Sri Lanka, for example, would have seen nothing wrong with importing the gorgeous art of Amaravati and using it to form their own distinctive religious practices without feeling any less distinct. There was, generally, much interaction and innovation. And indeed, this art of Amaravati, along with the art of Mathura and Gandhara, which I'll get to in a later episode, is the perfect example of this interaction and innovation. 
the unknown masters who plied their trade in that city created one of the most influential schools of art that the world has ever seen. In it, we see kings and queens, handmaidens and warriors, altars and snakes, lions and buddhas. Frozen in the limestone are the detailed, vibrant lives of our ancestors, perfectly rendered for us to stare at and be stirred by millennia later. The art itself shows not only distinct Andhra and Buddhist influences, but also elements and poses from the trading partners of ancient Andhra. We see Romanesque altars, which some maestro may have picked up from a golden coin that some awestruck foreigner used to buy some trinket. We see horses exactly like those that the Roman emperors rode on their coins. We see rosettes with compositions like Gandharan plates. Buddha leaves his home again and again on the railings of the great stupa. Again and again he sits under the bodhi tree and gains enlightenment. Again and again he gives his first sermon. In each of these carvings, a different influence, a different interpretation, the devotion of a different sponsor seeking merit and blessings. The sheer life of these images, the inventiveness of their composition, the play of perspective is awe-inspiring. Like always, India took ideas, mixed them up and made them its own. Politics and religion and economics make for an intoxicating combination, when they align, that is. So what great king or queen was responsible for Ramaravati? None of them. And that is what is most striking about Buddhism in Andhra. It was ideally suited for the urbanization and for the new elites of the time, who used their wealth to leave a mark on history unlike any that came before. Most later Indian religious buildings were commissioned by small groups of elite individuals, reflecting an increasingly centralized state. But the Mahachaitya at Amaravati is the product of the collective throngs of the times, of hundreds of little pilgrims and workmen, merchants and householders. This tablet, at the foot of the Mahachaitya, is a gift of Mr. Kanha from Damila and his brother, Mr. Little Kanha, and their sister, Nakha. I, General Mudukutala, donated this pillar. By the god Thana, Mrs. Sudata of the Jadikiya family, with her mother, sons, brothers and daughters, donates this lamp to the great Chaitya of the Holy One. This is the pure gift of Chodakicha, the chief of the merchants, the pious trader. If any of it was left and not plundered by British archaeologists and people in search of building material, this great building would have been the most powerful link that any Indian could feel to his or her ancestors and not to those who ruled over them. Barely two inscriptions on the stupa refer to royalty and the rest are all commissioned by commoners. But as always in history, we cannot separate the actions of the rulers from the conditions in which the rule lived. So in all seriousness, who maintained the conditions that allowed these vast throngs of devotees to coordinate with Buddhists to create this? Some credit goes to the Satavahanas who I have discussed earlier. But wait, wait, what are the Satavahanas doing in Andhra? Last we saw them, they were busy bragging about how they defeated the Shakas in northern Maharashtra, which is far to the west. Well, it turns out that unfortunately for the Satavahanas, the Shakas too soon fought back 
and how a new conflict was beginning to erupt not just political but a war of languages and the consequences of that will echo down to the languages that you and I speak at home today but that's a story for a later episode if you liked echoes of india don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the ivm network you can listen to us on the ivm podcast app or ivmpodcast.com while you're at it why not follow us on twitter and instagram at ivm podcasts and if you have questions or comments on echoes i'm at ekanisetti on twitter and at aniruddha devaraya on instagram <laughs>